0: Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars, law pay.
1: Some people diagnosed with attention deficit disorder need prescription stimulus to function to the best of their abilities, while others who don't have the diagnosis take the medicine because they think it will help them perform better, and that can lead to some big problems. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Patrick Krill, an attorney and board-certified alcohol and drug counselor about prescription stimulant abuse in both law school and the legal profession. Pat, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Stephanie. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation to be here.
1: Yes, of course. I saw a percentage the other day that 20% of college students abuse prescription stimulants. Do you have a sense of whether for someone who's abusing a prescription stimulant as an undergraduate, does it oftentimes get worse when they go to law school because there's more pressure?
0: Well, I think that that would be a logical conclusion to reach, that individuals who were accustomed to misusing stimulants during their undergraduate years might be more inclined to continue that misuse through their law school experience because the stakes are higher, the pressure to perform is greater, and so I think that that is a very like I said reasonable conclusion to reach. I can't point you to a precise data point that would suggest that that is true, but I do know that prescription misuse among law students is it's quite common. And that one in 20 rather, figure that you cited, that I believe is drawn from a meta-analysis of several different studies which looked at the prevalence of stimulant misuse among college students. And that was sort of the average that they arrived at, roughly 20%. That is a significant, significant number, especially in light of the fact that those who have what you might consider legitimate prescriptions for those substances is far lower.
1: So you worked on the ABA and Hazelden study on substance abuse in the legal profession a few years back. Did it look at prescription stimulant abuse?
0: It did. And we found that roughly 6% of attorneys reported, you know, using stimulants in a way that would be considered problematic. What I'll say about that, however, as a caveat And you may recall this, when that study was published, the survey respondents who answered the questions about drug use, that number was far smaller than those who answered the questions around alcohol and mental health. So put another way, there were three sections to that survey. One asked about alcohol use, one asked about drug use, and one asked about mental health use. And our findings related to drug use, uh, we had sort of less confidence in because far fewer people answered those questions, um, which in and of itself was telling. uh, From my perspective, As at the time, I was working in a clinical treatment center, helping law students, judges, and lawyers overcome addiction. And I was seeing plenty of people who were arriving in treatment addicted to all sorts of drugs, prescription drugs, and sometimes illicit drugs. And so it was clear to me that as a population, there was plenty of drug use occurring. And that was something that was certainly reinforced uh, from conversations I was having with lawyer assistance programs around the country. But when it came to the data, lawyers were far less likely to discuss their drug use in a survey. And, you know, I think you can understand that even in the context of an anonymous online survey where we weren't collecting any identifying information Lawyers just weren't going to tell you about their drug use. So we had a much smaller data set there.
1: I'm curious, too, if perhaps there's a bit of a generation gap among the legal profession who might be inclined to use prescription stimulants illegally, and that maybe if you're in your 50s and 60s and 70s, this may not really occur to you. And Is it more, is it more common with attorneys in their 20s, 30s, early to mid 40s than people who are a bit older? It is. Okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I do think that there is a generational divide for sure. Prescription medication to treat ADHD and in other related conditions really took off over the course of the last couple of decades. So, somebody who's maybe in their 50s or 60s, you know, that medication might not have been as widely available to them earlier on. And now they're just at a point where experimentation with a substance like that is far less likely, um, and they're also far less likely to be diagnosed with with ADHD, for example, as an adult.
1: Mm-hmm. Or even go get help for it, I would imagine. And then that leads to my next question. I think it's important to mention that for some people who do have ADHD with a medical diagnosis and get a prescription that's right for them, it can really help them function, right? It's not like it's all bad. Some of it can really be a game changer for people who have a diagnosis and need it.
0: It can be for for those who have a diagnosis. It can be a very useful medication, and it can allow them to sort of regulate their attention and regulate their focus and their behavior, and to really uh, you know overcome some of the challenges that the disorder uh, would otherwise present. So, yes, you're absolutely right. For a certain population, the drug can be quite efficacious.
1: Okay, in the same respect, though, I'm curious. There's such a need for perfection and attention to details, both in law school and the legal profession, I am wondering if perhaps even sometimes people who have a prescription for it might over-medicate themselves or, you know, those who don't have a prescription for it. It just kind of seems like in the practice of law, I can see where using this drug might be very enticing to some people, particularly if they are worried about their ability to compete with their peers.
0: Well, I think that that's absolutely true and that's really sort of where the seductive quality of these drugs comes into play for many people because they perceive it as a route to improved cognitive functioning, improved performance, they perceive it as a route to, you know, gaining a competitive advantage and, you know, perhaps as a shortcut. And so they will begin to either misuse an existing Prescription that they may have for a legitimate underlying diagnosis and to take it in higher doses, or they may, you know, begin to obtain the drug without a diagnosis and to use it purely for performance enhancing purposes, which raises an entirely separate discussion. But the, the fact is, for people who are otherwise healthy, so in other words, they don't have that underlying diagnosis. It is actually negatively correlated with enhanced performance rather than positively correlated with enhanced performance. And there's been a lot of research into this. So the idea that it is necessarily going to give uh, someone a clear-cut advantage is it's not true, yet people do perceive it in that way.
1: So what would some of the negative outcomes be for someone who's abusing the prescription in terms of performance?
0: Well, so they could be, you know, they, they have less sort of intellectual flexibility. They're they're going to be prone to more black and white thinking. They could lead, the, you know, they could find themselves in a state of exhaustion because they've really sort of stayed up and worked beyond their otherwise sort of normal boundaries. And they, they may be more alert, but their executive functioning, ironically, could be impaired. And it's it's actually not leading them to be sharper. So, for example, they may be able to sit there at their desk and if they're a law student, study for more hours. And if they're a lawyer, they may be able to work for more hours. But their cognitive functioning during that time is not actually enhanced.
1: What about anxiety? Can it trigger that, too, if you take too
0: much? It certainly can trigger anxiety. I mean, It can have a host of unwanted physical and psychological side effects. The physical toll can be significant, um, but psychological impacts can also be significant, such as increased anxiety. On that anxiety point, though, I should also say there are higher rates of stimulant misuse found in those with pre-existing psychological distress, such as anxiety, meaning a population where there's a lot of anxiety, those, that cohort is going to be more likely to misuse stimulants. And we know there's a lot of anxiety in law school and in the legal profession. And so where I'm going with that is that that really presents another route by which people may be attracted to this drug in the legal profession. So on the one hand, you have people who are viewing this as performance enhancing, and they're viewing it as a study aid or a performance aid, something that's going to give them an edge, a so-called smart drug. And so that's why they are drawn to it, and that's why they perhaps begin to use it without a prescription, and or misuse it. But on the other hand, um, those who have a pre-existing underlying mental health condition, such as anxiety, will also be more susceptible to prescription misuse. So there's, there are really a couple of routes by which lawyers and law students might find themselves being sort of pulled towards stimulant use and misuse.
1: If you were a law school professor and you're fairly engaged with your students, are there some signs that you're, you have a student who has some problems with a prescription stimulant? I, I have heard that some people will take the pills during a final, which kind of shocked me. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that as well. I have heard that some people might bring uh, the pills to the bar exam and take it during the bar exam, as opposed to, I mean, I guess if that's your prescribed time, great, but they'll take it for more than their prescribed time is what I'm hearing.
0: Well, and that raises a really interesting and thorny point, right? How does somebody who is not intimately familiar with somebody's medical record or otherwise state of health know if this person is taking it, you know, in accordance with a legitimate prescription and if they're taking it as prescribed, um And so, somebody who's maybe proctoring an exam or a, a law school professor, they might not feel like they are appropriately situated to make that call, and they wouldn't want to sort of run afoul of somebody who does have a condition for which an accommodation is warranted. Now, I'll say, in the vast majority of cases, when people are taking, a, you know, whether it be Adderall or Ritalin or or some other stimulant during the bar exam or you know, while taking a a law school final or something like that, the majority of those cases are not going to have a prescription, and it they are utilizing it as a study aid. Some of the the signs that somebody might perceive or or notice, you know, would include sort of increased restlessness and you know perhaps a state of agitation. The, the people are quite likely to also have some visible physical manifestations, right? They, their skin appearance and their pallor may be off. Um, you know, they, they could have uh, just sort of a general look of being unwell. Again, that's hard to really, for somebody who's untrained, such as a law school professor would be, it's hard for them to know. I mean, and they probably see plenty of law students arrive at final exams who look sleep deprived, um, but they've really done that, you know, as a result of, you know take drinking too much coffee. And so it you can't jump to conclusions, but I do think that certainly law school professors do need to be more acutely aware of the prevalence of all substance misuse, uh, but for purposes of this conversation, uh, prescription stimulant misuse among the students that they're teaching. And it's not clear to me that law school professors are really provided with any level of meaningful instruction around signs or symptoms related to any behavioral health challenges, let alone prescription medication misuse.
1: So let's just say, say you're giving your final exam at 11 a.m. and someone is taking their pill while they're doing the exam, probably a pretty good chance that they may not be taking it correctly, but you probably shouldn't say anything about it if you're a law professor. Is kind of what I'm hearing from you, right? Because there's a whole host of issues with that.
0: Well, there could be a whole host of issues, but I, I would say, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, regardless of whether you should or shouldn't, I would be shocked if uh, a law school professor out there would, you know, approach someone and say, "What was that?" Mm-hmm. You know, you just talk um, yeah. probably out of out of fear for uh, of you know having that conversation go poorly and if the person was taking something as prescribed. But, you know, I I think let's put it this way. That should be a huge red flag.
1: Okay. So when you are working with employers and they contact you because an employee has a problem and it's with prescription stimulus, are they usually aware of what the problem is or they just know something is going on? I could imagine in the employee studies and employers, I mean, they might know if it appears somebody has a Coke problem, but it may not be as apparent to managers, you know, when they're 50s and 60s or even 40s, if somebody has a prescription stimulant problem.
0: Yes, you're absolutely right. There are some substance use problems that are easier to detect than others. Um, typically, for example, alcohol addiction or alcohol misuse, it's a little bit easier to, to sort of see from a distance. And you, you, you may, in fact, actually smell the substance on the person. But with prescription medication um, or even illicit narcotics, I mean, often law firms do not know what somebody is struggling with or misusing. And I would say eight times out of 10, when I get a call from a law firm or other legal employer and they're concerned about one of their partners, one of their lawyers, they don't know what the problem is. Uh, They've maybe ruled some things out, but if it's, unless it's a clear cut case of, we know this person has had a drinking problem for a long time, or we know this person is currently under psychiatric care for major depression, um, unless they have something that's really some clear cut knowledge like that, they usually don't know what the problem is. Um, And if they do suspect it might be drug use, especially if it's prescription drug use, they're frequently reluctant to, you know, sort of inquire about that out of a lot of the same reasons. It could be a legitimate medical condition, uh, you know, and there are privacy and confidentiality concerns. So I would say that broadly speaking, lawyers and law firms, also, don't have a really good sense of what somebody's struggling with when it is a drug use problem. If I could just add, um, as I'm sure you're aware, the American Bar Association, through the president's working group to improve lawyer well-being of which I'm a member, we launched a pledge campaign last year asking uh, legal employers to sign up and essentially pledge their support for a seven step framework. And we launched that in September of 2018. And we are now with with 12 core law firms who were on board at the time. We're now up to over 100 signatories, including um, roughly a dozen law schools. And the reason why I'm mentioning this, the relevance to our conversation, is that one step in that framework is to provide enhanced and robust education to staff and attorneys You know, so that they would be able to recognize when somebody is struggling with various things. So I'm really encouraged by that development and by the fact that we seem to be gaining so much momentum with this pledge campaign, because what it's seeking to do is to really sort of correct a weakness that's sort of out there in many legal environments, which is a lack of appreciation or a lack of knowledge about what to look for if somebody's struggling with a substance or a mental health problem. So if you were to ask me that question again in a couple of years, I might be able to say, I have a higher level of confidence that, that law school faculty might be able to spot somebody struggling with prescription uh, stimulant misuse than I do right now in 2019.
1: Interesting. So if someone is struggling with prescription misuse with a stimulant, what would like, say, two primary signs be? It seems like taking a pill during an exam could be one sign, perhaps.
0: Yes. And I would say if you're looking for essentially two signs, I mean, they would probably look generally unwell and, and somewhat ragged around the edges, although you know, many law students do, and they're not misusing substances, um, but erratic behavior, um, you know, distorted thinking, um, a lack of, you know, just sort of a, a lack of cognitive, I don't know, I would say erratic behavior and distorted thinking would be two sort of things that you might want to look out for in addition to the physical manifestations where you can just observe and how the person looks.
1: Okay. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I wanted to talk to you about getting help for prescription stimulant abuse. We'll be right back.
0: Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person, no equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com slash podcast to sign up and get your first three months free.
1: And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, we're talking about prescription stimulant abuse with Patrick Krill. He's an attorney and board-certified alcohol and drug counselor. So, Pat, say that someone has come to the realization that they have a problem with abusing a prescription stimulant, What are some good first steps for them to try to change things for themselves?
0: So I think it would depend largely on who this person is and what their sort of general situation might be. It will probably look different depending if they are a law student or an employed attorney. And we can start with the law students first. So assuming that a law student wouldn't have a lot of robust benefits available to them the way that... Somebody who's employed might, you know, they might want to start with their campuses, their schools, because of, you know, the the dean of students is frequently a good place to go and sort of seek resources and seek direction to resources. You know, they may want to contact a lawyer assistance program. Lawyer assistance programs in many jurisdictions do work with law students and provide consultation, counseling, and direction to resources. Uh, So I would say that those would be two good places to start. Now, maybe they have some sort of insurance or they do have some sort of additional benefits available to them, um, and I would certainly encourage them to explore those options as well, Um, because depending on where they are on sort of the spectrum of their substance misuse, and I, I guess I should point out that substance use disorders are diagnosed on a spectrum from mild to moderate to severe um, and depending on where they might currently be on that spectrum, the appropriate resources for them will vary. So, if there's somebody who's maybe just started dabbling in you know adderall misuse and they they want to nip that bud, that's going to require a sort of gentler intervention and less resources to correct, as opposed to somebody who is really far down the road and they are quite literally um, addicted to the substance. And so, you know, for somebody like that, going to treatment, maybe taking a leave of absence and going to residential treatment would be warranted. Turning to the lawyer population, they typically would have more resources available to them through their healthcare provider, perhaps through their employee assistance program that is firm sponsored or firm provided. Um, again, lawyer assistance programs are options for lawyers as well. And so, You know, it really does depend on who the person is and what their circumstances are. But the one message I would want people to hear, you know, irrespective of where they get help, it's that help is available and there's plenty of help available. And there are many pathways to overcoming substance use disorders. Um, It's not necessarily simply going to a 12 step meeting, although I will say that is another pathway that would be beneficial to certain people. Narcotics Anonymous, um, which is, you know, NA, it's the analog of Al- Alcoholics Anonymous is a 12-step program that would be useful for some people seeking to overcome an addiction to, you know, to drugs. And so that's just another example of, of where somebody might turn for help, but it's it's really highly variable depending on the person, depending on their needs, depending on the resources available to them um, and also depending on what they're willing to do. Some people would, you know, rather get ahead of the problem fully and, and try to overcome it. And they're willing to sort of take as much time off as necessary. And other people may be more inclined to, you know, take a lesser or or gentler approach and try to, you know, overcome the problem with as little disturbance to their routine as possible.
1: If you get picked up and police find, say, a bottle of Concerta on you and it's not yours and it's not your kids, is there any penalty for that? Would you get into trouble, do you think?
0: It would depend on the circumstances. I I think, you know, and I'm, I'm certainly not a criminal defense attorney, but I would imagine that, you know, it would really depend. I think police are probably if you weren't doing anything else wrong that led them to believe that you are misusing the substance, then I would think that the odds of that are, are low. But if, for example, you get pulled over for erratic driving and you are found to be in possession of a prescription that's not yours, well then, yes, absolutely, you could expect that to be a huge problem.
1: Okay. And if a law school for, it sounds like this probably wouldn't happen, but just say a law school found out that a group of students were taking a prescription stimulant without a prescription would there be any kind of recourse there, do you think? Or is it just impossible to imagine where that would come to the law school's attention?
0: No, it does come to law school's attention. um, And I would say they may by talking to the student or students and, you know, really sort of investigating what's going on there. There's probably, uh, under most circumstances, going to be a lot of denial and obfuscation on those students' parts. I, I would be surprised if they willingly said, yes, I mean, yeah, we're we're all misusing Ritalin to ace contracts. I mean, that's probably not going to happen. So it it may involve a, a bit more of an investigation. But what I would encourage any law school confronted with that situation to do is to try and direct those students to resources so that they can stop using and stay stopped. And so that they you know recognize that they're ultimately setting themselves up for failure and for a lot of you know bad outcomes if they keep using and misusing that substance in the absence of, leg- of a legitimate underlying diagnosis or medical need to do so.
1: If you're abusing the prescription and you stop, are there any immediate side effects? I guess the question is, is this something taking out the mind-body aspect of being well, can you stop this on your own or do you maybe need some medical help?
0: No. Well, it would depend, really. It would depend on how much the person was misusing, but certainly some sort of medically supervised detox would be appropriate for somebody who was taking a lot. Uh, and if they had been misusing the substance for a long time, uh, then yes, some sort of medically supervised detoxification process would be very much recommended. Uh, and it's important to note these are drugs that you can overdose on, right? And so they're far from you know, innocuous, and these are these are substances that people can and do overdose on. But if somebody were to stop using on their own and just you know make the decision, I've been taking this, I don't have a legitimate medical need to take this, um, and I want to stop. Some of the side effects of of withdrawing could it you know include paranoia, just dysregulated heartbeat, dysregulated sort of physical health, you know, sweating tremors, all sorts of, you know, mental health complications, depression, anxiety. I mean, there's there's really a lot that can go into, you know, misusing and then ultimately withdrawing from these substances. And that's what I would want anybody to hear, especially those who are considering, you know, maybe they're sort of occasionally taking these substances. I would want them to appreciate that there is a significant risk of complications and and costs associated with increasing use.
1: So say you only take it once a month, but one time during that month, you take like, say, instead of 36 milligrams, you take like 56 or whatever. That could cause you an overdose?
0: Well, again, that would depend, right, on the person. And and people are are highly variable, age, weight, gender, general physical health, you know, other medical conditions. So I would certainly be reluctant to get into sort of a milligram discussion, but gotcha. um, people people can overdose on these substances and they can begin to take them in increasing doses because, you know, they're, they're perhaps not experiencing the perceived benefit at the level that they want to.
1: And that would lead to my next question, as I would imagine some people who are abusing these prescriptions or who don't have a prescription are taking it they're afraid to stop because of the fear of failure and they won't be able to perform well, right?
0: I would imagine that that is part of the psychology of people who misuse prescription stimulants. Yes, it's this thinking that if I don't take this, I won't be able to pass or I won't be able to function or I won't be able to manage my workload. Um, But in reality, I mean, that's in the vast majority of cases, simply not true. And people may actually be handicapping their own intellectual performance by misuse of these substances. And they just don't really understand that. All of which goes back to the lack of education in the legal profession around psychoactive substances, around mental health conditions generally, um, which we are trying to correct and trying to get more legal employers and law schools to provide meaningful education around.
1: So do you have advice if someone is misusing this drug and they have that fear of failure, how can they work through that? I would imagine good talk therapy could go a long way, but what are some ways to approach it and just just to kind of get in a different mindset that you don't need to take this pill to perform to the best of your ability?
0: Yeah, so you read my mind. Essentially talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy might be very useful for somebody like that as an adjunct to, you know, sort of a, a supervised or otherwise prescribed weaning off the substance. But yes, working with a therapist to help you uh, reframe your fears and really overcome a lot of the irrational thoughts that you that might be bound up in your using of that substance. You know, the bottom line is having support and not feeling like you need to, you know, walk that road alone because there's plenty of support available and if you're working with a therapist, they might be able to really give you that level of support or perhaps it's through a mutual aid society like Narcotics Anonymous, or perhaps it's through some other peer group. But the bottom line is you're getting support and you're, you're you know, having some reinforcement along the way as you try to make that change, which isn't easy, right? Especially, again, going back to the spectrum of all of this, if somebody's further along in that spectrum, it will be more difficult. And you know, if overcoming substance misuse or addiction was easy, Uh, a lot more people would do it. And really, there wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be um, in our society as a whole.
1: And if you are abusing a prescription stimulant and you stop using it, and then you make a mistake and start using it again, you can always stop again, right?
0: Of course. And it's important to understand that relapse is a common part of, you know, the process if people are attempting to overcome, you know, a substance use disorder. And so it's not uncommon. And simply because at your first attempt to stop using it outright, you, you fail and you, you continue to, or I should say, maybe you don't succeed in remaining abstinent from that substance in the first instance. Um, that's no reason to believe that you can't ultimately succeed. I mean, most people, it will take them one or two or sometimes multiple attempts to stop using whatever substance they've developed a problematic relationship with. And that's, I'm really glad you asked that question because it's easy for people to become discouraged and to think that, you know, well, this is it. I I really can't stop and to sort of throw their hands up. And that's that's the wrong approach. It's It's the wrong outlook.
1: Right. Patrick, that's everything I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you, Stephanie. It was good to chat with you.
1: Yes. And I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please find us and rate us at Apple Podcasts. Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, and or your favorite podcasting app. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.